Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. An Erio's original... And welcome to Web Crawlers, the podcast where we do a deep dive into some of our favorite mysteries. Each week, we will introduce our topic, lay out our research and findings, reveal some conspiracy theories, and conclude with our own hypothesis. I am Allie Siegel. I am Melissa Stettin. And I, Producer Maria. Uh, Melissa, who are our patrons for today? We've got our Olive, mm. Hillary. Quinn and Amanda. Hi, guys. Welcome to the team. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be a boss dog day. Today's episode. So I think on a mailbag episode, maybe it was last week or the week before, someone called in and said that they were related to oh, right. a woman who had been murdered during the Salem witch trials. She was accused of witchcraft and had been hanged. I can't remember, unfortunately, the name. Elizabeth something. Okay. And that really inspired us, uh, God rest her soul, that inspired us to do a whole episode on the Salem witch trials. Maria, what's like hilarious to you? Your tweet to me. Oh. I literally was on t- Twitter and I wrote, I just wrote a tweet before we started and I almost even mentioned you going like, Allie's going to hate this. And I literally just like opened my Twitter and I just see a tweet from Allie to me that just writes, she wrote, this is embarrassing. Yeah. What did well, you tweet? Well, it's one of her classic tweets. Maria, read your tweet. <laughs> I uh, I asked a very sincere read it question. Verbatim. Read it verbatim. And- Looking for a really good ground coffee for a standard coffee. Yeah, standard coffee machine that isn't standard for hashtag recipes because I don't want anyone to think I need like pour over. I'm not pour over. I just need like something to put in the coffee mate. Yeah. Embarrassing. You couldn't even get through it without laughing. I need help. 
intelligentsia. That's not bitter. I feel like that's going to be like bitter. It's not? No. Okay. All right. God God forbid a woman ask for a little help. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Fair. Fair right angle. Okay. Um, and we're going to really be discussing women, women today. Um, in the Salem Witch Trials, we also have two incredible guests. We're so lucky. We have Marilyn Roach, who is a Salem scholar, and she is author of Six Women of Salem, The Untold Story of the Accused and Their Accusers in the Salem Witch Trials. Also super cool, she was a member of the Gallows Project, which was a group of like archaeologists or anthropologists who helped to find the correct site of the 1692 hangings. Ooh. Really cool stuff. And then we also have amazing Rachel Christ, who is director of education at the Salem Museum. So we're going to get to ask them some in-depth questions uh, about these Salem witch trials as well. So first things first, let's do a quick web crawler's history of the Salem uh -oh. witch trials. Yeah, uh-oh. Get ready. Uh, this just means I uh, look through Wikipedia and other websites, <laughs> copied and pasted, and then I just get to put it in my own words uh, on the fly. That's essentially what a podcast <laughs> is, <Yeah>. baby. <laughs> and away we go. Um, so we all know, or most of us know, the Salem witch trials were in 1692 and 1693 in colonial Massachusetts, started in Salem, more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft. Uh, I read that it's something like 78% of those people were, of course, women, which is interesting. I want to ask uh, one of our guests later about that. 30 were found guilty and 19 were executed by hanging. Can I ask a qu quick question? Yes. There's like burned at the stake. Where did that come from? If they were, were any of them burned? That's what's interesting is I didn't see any of that in any of the research. So we should ask that as well. And then also I've heard a lot of stuff about like if they would throw them in a river and if they floated, then they were, right. that oh, meant right. that they were witches. I didn't see that in any of the evidence during the trials as well. So those are definitely huh. definite questions that we should ask. So here is how it all started. In January of 1692, these two little girls, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old, a nine-year-old named Betty Paris and an 11-year-old named Abigail Williams. They were the daughter and the niece of the minister in Salem Village, this guy, Reverend Samuel Paris. All of a sudden, they fell ill. They were making strange sounds. They were, like, hiding under the furniture. They were clutching their heads. They were having, like, epileptic fits. They were saying that like people were invisible forces were pinching them. They were basically freaking out. Prayer wasn't working to heal them. Medicine wasn't working to heal them. A doctor came to the house and said, the only explanation here is that it must be witchcraft. Wow. Yeah. Then that's kind of how this whole thing started. The first three people who were accused of allegedly being witches were Anne Putnam Jr., Elizabeth Hubbard, Sarah Good. This is more than three people, excuse me. Uh, Sarah <laughs> Osborne and Tituba. 
And Tituba was, unfortunately, the slave of the uh, Paris family. One thing that is kind of interesting is that there was a real family rivalry between the Paris family and the Putnam family. It went through like the Salem village, like people felt like they had to choose sides between like Reverend Samuel Paris and his family and the Putnam family. So one theory that maybe we can get into later was this kind of a family dispute where Samuel Paris might have told his daughter like, hey, I want you to act a fool. And then why don't you accuse this this oh. other this other family's daughter of witchcraft or something like that so like oh like she did this to me it was her yeah like it was just like it a, was her yeah like a squabble <laughs> between the two kids like samuel paris's oh. daughter accused the paris uh, the putnam's daughter of like witchcraft or like you know taunting her and then it exploded into this whole witchcraft phenomenon of mass hysteria this is this is wild that that the crucible the play the all of these characters are in that play and yeah that's like oh i've never it, seen it really it. is it's crazy right uh wasn't winona ryder in the uh in the film she with, was with uh, daniel day lewis oh was it daniel day lewis in the cruise hold on everyone calm down we're gonna get there i gotta know right now maria <laughs> i have to know <laughs> just hold on i gotta type in movie i didn't type in movie mm. daniel day lewis winona oh. ryder plays abigail williams Oh, I got to give that a watch. Got to give that a gander. And Daniel Day-Lewis plays John Proctor. I love a D.D. Lewis. I did watch a Lifetime movie uh, starring <laughs> Kirstie Alley. To, to Probably just pr- as good. Yeah, which was phenomenal. Uh, but unfortunately, I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. It, it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really resonate with me. Um, anyways, one thing that's kind of interesting about the women who were initially uh, accused, they all had kind of less than stellar reputations within the community. Mm-hmm. Easy targets. Easy targets, yes. Uh, Sarah Osborne didn't uh, attend church uh, regularly. She had been remarried once. Tituba was uh, obviously um, of a different race than the rest of the community, uh-huh. so was also an easy target. I believe that they said that Sarah Good had quote unquote like loose morals. So she was fun. Yeah, so she was a, she was <laughs> she a was true cool. web crawler's bimbo. So it's interesting to note, uh, at least at first, the the type of yeah. women who were being accused. Right, these weren't like the saints of the village, like the the good the goody yeah. two shoes. Could this also potentially have just been a uh, attempt to purify the community of people who oh, they thought were you know less than savory uh, members. Which leads me to what is Puritanism? The community was a Puritan uh, community. They had obviously uh, come from England and set up in Salem, Massachusetts. They were Puritans. They had left England because they had thought that the Church of England was not fully reformed. They thought it should be more Protestant. They wanted to purify and regulate the church and have it be basically like more strict. And so these were very uh, like pious people who really want to live by the Bible. 
One thing that I thought was kind of interesting in my research is that it actually says in the Bible, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, which I did not know. It's Exodus twenty two eighteen in the King James Bible. In the LeBron James Bible? In the LeBron James Bible, in the Space Jam 2 Bible. Um, <laughs> it says, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Whoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. He that sacrificed unto any God, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. However, so I guess obviously they were taking this literally. However, there is obviously some dispute as to whether or not the word witch is translated properly. Oh. So I got this from haretz.com, which is a website, which I assume is of Jewish origin. Okay, so it says the original Hebrew word used in Exodus that they translated as witch is called mekhashepa. And excuse me if I'm pronouncing any of this wrong. I haven't spoken Hebrew since my bat mitzvah. Mekhashepa. So it says that Mekhashepa was originally translated into pharmakeia. A lecturer in biblical studies uh, translated pharmakeia to herbalist. So, oh, kitchen witch, kitchen witch, kitchen witch, kitchen witch, sandwich, (laughs) sandwich. (laughs) So some people were like, okay, so this word means witch. Other people think that pharmakeia could be poisoner. So anyone who potentially murders or poisons someone else should be put to death is what the other um so they're saying like anyone who knows how to like mix up some like herbs and mushrooms to kill anyone who like knows what's up in the forest should die is a witch yeah (laughs) (laughs) but they're they that like some people say that the word witch should even be taken out of it that it should be poisoners thou shall not suffer a poisoner to live so anyone who poisons someone else should die which like during these times like think about it they're like poisoning uh was one of the main ways that people would kill other people an interesting take that maybe which was never even the word that was in the bible it was just poisoners however whoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death is obviously uh i'm sure reference to the devil, or it could be a reference to bestiality. I mean, I don't know. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) Sick as hell. Anyways, also going back to how the majority of the people accused were women, while they did believe that women and men were like, I guess, equal in the eyes of God, although who knows if that's really true. They did think that women were inherently more sinful you know, the devil was more likely to tempt a woman than he was to tempt a man. Like garden of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Garden of uh, Garden of Eden Eden shit. So uh, it was not uh, totally surprising that they thought that it was these mostly women who had been tempted by the devil and led to witchcraft rather than men. It was just more probable. That's what kind of they had in their minds already. So let's talk about Salem at the time. 
The governor was this dude, Sir William Phipps. The chief justice was this guy, William Stoughton, and he presided over the trials. And then there were these judges named Hawthorne, Samuel Seawall, and William Stoughton, who I mentioned he was a chief justice. Then there was this guy, Samuel Paris. He was the minister, the Puritan mister. Uh, the Puritan minister. <laughs> the Puritan mister. He was hey, a mister. He was a Puritan uh, <laughs> minister. He was also uh, the father and uncle of two of the afflicted girls, which is kind of oh, interesting right. that the that the guy who is the minister of oh, weird. the Salem colony also kind of kicks off this whole chain of events with his niece hmm. and his daughter uh-huh. being like, we're possessed. This is who's uh-huh. doing it. Sure People without morals. Yeah. Also, there's a lot of other stuff going on at the time which could have contributed to this. This is from the Salem Witch Museum website. It says... To understand the events of the Salem witch trials, it is necessary to examine the times in which accusations of witchcraft occurred. There was the ordinary stresses of 17th century life in Massachusetts Bay Colony, a strong belief in the devil, a recent smallpox epidemic, and the threat of attack by warring tribes created by fertile ground for fear and suspicion. This was made worse by a growing factional conflict in Salem Village. The village rival- rivalry... <laughs> Whoa. No, oh no. Uh-oh. Malfunction. <laughs> now that's embarrassing. Uh, the village's <laughs> rivalry with a nearby Salem town and the removal of the Massachusetts Bay Charter in 1684, which left the colony in a state of fear and confusion. To many, it's seen that the Puritan ideal of a city on a hill, oh my god, on a hill, city city on a hill. I'm like city on a hill, or a city on a hill, (laughs) city on a hill was slipping away, and that their decades of work were suddenly uh, being pulled away from their grasp. Many wondered if it was perhaps Satan's forces that had infiltrated their new land. They were looking for excuses. They're like, something must be up. It must be the witches. Yeah. And it's kind of like we were talking about on Gabby Dunn's podcast, Bad With Money, that sometimes when things are growing awry, people start looking for an excuse for things. And that's where Uh conspiracies start coming in. Where like mm-hmm. that's where or stuff loss like of control. Yeah. It's the loss of and, and needing to be in control. And the only way you can be in control is if you can actually like grasp something and go, I know what's going on. Yeah. I can wrap my head around this. Totally. You got to place the blame on something else that's tangible. So that's how stuff like QAnon comes up or like mm-hmm. mass hysteria, Salem witch trials uh, kind of comes into play. So then these trials started from 1692, 1693. Like we said, uh, about 200 people were suspected. This is what's crazy. Uh, one man named Giles Corey was pressed to death. Huh? Oh, boy. I'm pr- That's horrible. I'm pretty sure. I, I think it's like death by crushing. Oh, yeah. God. I think Jeez. it was the one time that they did it jeez I mean, that's, that's like stoning people like being stoned oh, to death like God it's dang it what are yeah oh. so oh so it looks like they place stone yeah it looks like they place stones on top of him until oh my horrible. god so it wasn't people horrible. it was stones that just they just kept yikes well, were people putting the stone people were putting them on them in this process prisoners were stripped naked and heavy boards were laid on their bodies 
Then rocks or boulders were laid on the plank oh, of wood. This oh was the process God. of being pressed. This in, in unimaginable. Unimaginable. Yeah, until they just like explode. Crazy. And again, so how people were accused of witchcraft, uh, quote unquote witchcraft, were crazy. Uh, the evidence was just, quote unquote, spectral evidence. So if someone said they thought someone was a witch, then it was just indisputable in court. That's crazy. <laughs> People are crazy. When they when these try so when they would go on the stand, the things like or people would be like I I saw her doing this and then it would be like no no I didn't and then there would be no evidence, no anything and it would just kind of be taking people at their word. Yeah, and that's called spectral evidence. So if someone was like I saw Sarah good uh appear in my room and do witchcraft. And then the the jurors and the judge were like, okay, we're going to hang her. Like, it, it doesn't... It, what were the trials even for? Like, ever, no well, one... Exactly. Can't defend yourself. Yeah, the, there was... Did no anyone defense. get off? Like, did anyone not get hanged that was accused? Yes, and if but so- only because the trials ended, which I'll get to that in a second. The oh. trials ended for a kind of interesting reason. Ooh. Interesting. There was also um, what was called witch cakes... Uh, One thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that the witches, the quote unquote witches, weren't even the ones who were doing witchcraft. It was actually like the Puritans who were kind of doing like spells and old folk magic in order to find out who the witches were. So they made the the Puritans made these things called witch cakes and they would do it to ward off evil spirits and try to find out who the witches were. So, and it was a way to to uh, discover and find witchcraft. So, from what I know, they would make a cake from rye, and then anyone who was uh, said to be like possessed by a witch or like afflicted, um, like the young girls who were like having like the seizures and and hiding and being crazy, they would have them pee onto the cake, and then they would no, and then they would feed the cake to the dog, and then the dog what? would like sniff out who a witch was. This is what would the dog do? And then whoever I guess the dog went to, they they would say like is a witch. Ew. This is crazy. Who made this up? Who I mean, made this up? It's wild. Like some psycho. Like it, it, it was just like an old wives tale, uh, which you could easily say is a spell, a quote unquote spell that these right. that these people are doing. Like they were doing these, the spells the whole time. Yeah. Accused but these the difference is they're not working for the devil. They're they're <laughs> right, They feel right. they're working for God. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, then there was also what they called a touch test is another form of evidence where if the victim, uh, was having a fit, like one of their fits, and then they called in the believed witch. And if the believed witch touched the person who was having the fit, and if the fit stopped, then that meant that the person was a witch. Oh my God. But of course, these people were obviously faking it. So then they would call in whoever they wanted to be the witch and then they would just stop when they were touched. So basically, it was whoever they wanted to be like killed or excommunicated in the town. People in the 1600s were stupid as hell. Yes. 
Uh, also, uh, some other forms of quote unquote evidence. Um, if people were into palmistry or horoscopes, if they had like herbs in their house or things like that, or um, what they called a witch's teat, which were moles or blemishes. I am covered in moles and blemishes, so I would have You're been a witch. out. I'm Burn a witch. the witch. <laughs> what did, where did that come from? Like the, the putting moles and witches together in the same I don't know. World. Let's see. Origin of witches. Did you know while you're looking that up, that's uh, maybe if you have this in later, but I don't know why you would, because I think I just saw this on a tra- trailer for the show, but that show, um, where do you come from or whatever? Yeah. Um, who do you think you are? Sarah Michelle Gell? No, Sarah Jessica Parker is. She played a witch in Hocus Pocus. They did her lineage. She's related to one of the accused witches in Salem. Whoa. That's very very cool. Wow. So I haven't watched the episode. As I said, I just saw it on a commercial. Spoiler it alert. Stuck with me. <laughs> stuck with. Okay. Me. Um. I I couldn't get to the origin of that, but okay. So here it talks about the swimming test. I'm on history.com which is one of the things that we had talked about earlier that I couldn't find, but now I just found it. Uh, Swimming test, it says, uh, as part of the infamous infamous swimming test, accused witches were dragged to the nearest body of water, stripped to their undergarments, bound, and then tossed in to see if they would sink or float. Obviously, you're going to float because you don't want to die. Yeah. Uh, According to this logic, an innocent person would sink like a stone. But a witch would simply bob to the surface. Where does that come from? Where does that? Because they don't have a soul. Is that what they're it thinking? It was since witches were with? believed to have been spurned by the sacrament of baptism. It was thought that the water would reject their body and prevent them from submerging. It's a lose lose. Either drown yeah, and you're innocent. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, God. you're fucked. Um, yeah. For example, it says. Surrounding- oh, go ahead. No, I, ju- I was just going to say, for example, in 1710, the swimming test was used as evidence against a Hungarian woman named Dorko Boda, who was later beaten and burned at the stake as a witch. Well, she was burned. Right. Oh. Yeah, we'll have to ask about that. Were people in like Boston going like, do you hear what they're ta- <laughs> like doing in Salem? And they're like, what? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. do you think there's like wit? Like, were people surrounding Salem, the Salem colony, like thinking at all this was a little nutty? Or was this just kind of the way it was? Or, or maybe there know. wasn't. Yeah. Well, I didn't have Twitter back then. <laughs> right. Well, I want to. Well, that's <laughs> another thing is it? things take a long time to kind of like get to, you know, yeah. get around. But also I want to talk to Rachel about that is that these uh, witch trials ended up becoming kind of like international. So they, they spread they spread across, you know, the country and also internationally, like oh, right. to to Poland. Uh, there were also Asian-American witch trials. So I definitely want to talk to Rachel about some of that as well. There was also what they called a prayer test where uh, they would uh, make uh, and a lot of these uh, were they would say it to women who either could. Uh, who were like illiterate or who spoke a different language. They didn't speak English. They would try to make them recite a prayer or read a prayer. And then if they couldn't do it, then they were witches. It's insane. Yeah. So if they like weren't good at public speaking, then that was... <laughs> I would freak. Yeah. Okay. So here are the people who are found guilty and hanged. Uh, Bridget Bishop, Reverend George Burroughs, uh, Martha Carrier, Martha Corey, Mary Eastie, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, George Jacobs Sr., uh, Susanna Martin, 
Rebecca Nurse, Alice Parker, Mary Parker, John Proctor, Anne Pruditor, William Red, Margaret Scott, Samuel Wardwell, Sarah Wilds, and John Willard. Uh, Giles Corey was pressed, uh, condemned but not executed. Mary Bradbury, uh, Rebecca Eames, Abigail Faulkner, Anne Foster, uh, Dorcas Hoare, Abigail Hobbs, uh, Mary Lacey, Mary Post, Elizabeth Proctor, and Sarah Wardwell, and uh, some who are known to have died in jail, Lydia Dustin, Anne Foster, Sarah Osborne, Sarah Good's daughter, who is four years old, they accused her of being a witch and she died in jail. What the fuck? Yeah, and Roger Toothaker. And then here's how uh, the trials ended. Uh, And it was because the governor's wife was eventually accused of Uh being a witch. So Mm. things started to get crazy. Uh, Neighbors started just like accusing their neighbors of being a witch. Like imagine like, you forget to take your trash cans in and it pisses off your neighbors and they're like, you're a witch. Um, so things just start getting out of hand. Uh, so the wife of Governor Phipps in 1693 is accused of witchcraft. And the governor is like, okay, this is getting out of hand. I, my wife obviously can't be accused of a witch and be killed. Like, I got to put a stop to this. So he says now that spectral evidence is illegal and he makes it harder to convict anyone of witchcraft as a crime. And so the Salem witch trials pretty much fizzle out. People who are in jail or incarcerated already awaiting their trial are freed. Um, and, and everything just kind of ends, which makes you think That's like insane. That's insane. Yeah. Which it's insane. Make, it only lasted like nine months or something, like less than a year, right? Yeah, which makes you think like, okay, this was a sham. Like, obviously, there is no truth to this then if all of a sudden yeah. he's like, okay, actually, never mind. It's over. What's interesting, too, and maybe this is to the effect of the question you were asking earlier, is uh, the governor, Sir William Phipps, uh, banned any writing or publication about the witch hunt. So you weren't allowed to write books or articles about it. So a lot of people consider this to be the first cover up in American history. Um, Oh, sure. So he did not want any of this to get out. One thing that's kind of interesting is I think it was in 1957, uh, they started providing uh, apologies and restitution to the families or maybe it was 1954 uh, restitution and apologies to the families who had been affected uh, by the Salem witch trials. That's crazy. Sorry. We burned your great, great, great. Yeah. Sarah are bad. So some theories uh, that some we have talked about before and uh, others that maybe are new. We've talked about this a bit, um, but actually our guest uh, Marilyn Roach disputes it. We've talked about the fungus ergot before, right? which can cause symptoms like delusions, vomiting, uh, muscle spasms. It's found in rye and wheat. Um, in uh, 1976, Science Magazine did a study uh, saying that perhaps that's what caused uh, the Salem witch trials, that the Salem residents were um, exposed to this ergot poisoning. Well, that's... What was in that that French village? Yes, where everyone went crazy from the bread. That yeah. was one of the 
theories, it was like pretty much the cause was ergot. ergot. Yeah, exactly. However, um, I read on Marilyn's website, apparently you have to have very low vitamin A in order to be susceptible or something to the ergot poisoning. And she had written that um, based on the diets at the time, that was probably unlikely. So she kind of ruled that out. What my one of my theories is that this is just kind of an effort to purify the community that got out of hand that people wanted, you know, particularly um, the minister wanted people who weren't following, you know, the yeah. the Bible and the church to that makes sense somehow, you know, leave the community and they wanted a scapegoat for everything that was going on at the time. And this seemed to be the easiest way to do it. Also, maybe it was a feud between the Putnams and the Parises that went too far. Like the two mm-hmm. girls kind of like had like an elementary school fight uh, that went, you know, out of control and everyone started blaming each other for witchcraft and it became some crazy mass hysteria thing. Still something we talk about today. I remember that learning about the Salem witch trials in elementary school. But we'll ask Marilyn some questions about what could have caused this Uh Anything she's learned from her 27 years of research on uh, the subject, as well as the uh, Gallows Hill project, where she found, along with some others, the site of the hangings. Let's take a quick break for announcements. Webcrawlers has a Patreon to get access to rewards, bonus episode shoutouts, video episodes a day early, and more. Please go to patreon.com slash webcrawlers. You can donate as little as $2 a month to become a patron. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and we will read your review on our mailbag episodes. Also, Erios has a hotline. Insert jingle here. Uh, leave us a voicemail and we will continue to play them on our mailbag episodes. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, 
Scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Now we have Salem Scholar and author of Six Women of Salem, the untold story of the accused and their accusers in the Salem witch trials, Marilyn Roach. Hello. Hi, Marilyn. Am I unmuted? Yes. Yeah, you're perfect. Nice to see you in person almost. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for coming on. I was uh, watching a documentary last night and you were on it. I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been on the History Channel or ID Discover or something. Finding the site of the hanging. Yes. Yeah, it was really exciting. What was the correlation, I guess, between all of those who were accused of witchcraft and those who were not? Were those were there similarities between, you know, the mostly women who ended up being accused in the trials? Well, actually, in 1692, just about anybody could be accused, it seemed it really got out of hand. But most of the time, and there were not witch trials every day, every time the court sat throughout New England. Mm. Uh, but uh, generally, most usual suspect was an older woman without a lot of male relatives to take her part should somebody, you know, to sue the neighbor if they start uh, making dangerous gossip about her. Uh, or maybe they're on, falling on hard times so that they'll borrow something and you're kind of tired of having them always asking for something and and this friction that way. But uh, in 92, the richest couple in Salem were accused and a beggar woman was accused. Can you tell us about uh, the Gallows Project? Because that was pretty interesting. And also it was on uh, Archaeology Magazine's uh, top 10 most important discoveries, which is wild. (laughs) Well, there had been two conflicting local legends about where the hangings had taken place. I mean, ordinarily it would have happened in Boston because uh, capital crimes were tried there. But in 92, the government was being reshuffled a bit under the new charter, which we still have in the Massachusetts archive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, because there were so many accusations in Essex County, the court went there to hear the cases and the executions took place there in Salem. So there wasn't a regular place of execution because it, that was not a regular happening in town. But there were two uh, legends as to where it took place. One, the most, the most repeated one was the very top of what was is called Gallows Hill. It's a high place at the edge of town. And the second less known about theory was that it was at the bottom of the hill where there was a a rocky outcrop, and it was close to the road. Back in 1901, Sidney Purley, a local antiquarian who had read just about every deed and will in the courthouse, wrote an article identifying the spot with that lower ledge, which I thought sounded sensible because 
if you're having a public execution, it's to teach people what not to do. And you want it where people can see it, but you don't want it necessarily in someone's backyard. So this is at the edge of town. Back then, there were some houses in the distance, but nobody lived right there. It was already public land. It was a town on common pasture. The whole hill was. And uh, it was visible from the road to have the executions on the lower part. But if you went up the hill, it would really be out of sight of passers-by unless you toiled up. And it's steep. It's still steep. <laughs> so I, I thought it was the lower part. And in actually 1997, when I was researching my first big book on the trial, I noticed a clue in one of the court papers, Hurley had not noticed, saying that somebody had seen an execution from the house below the hill on the day of, uh, it was August 19th, when some people were being hanged. It was an eyewitness account, and it was written down like an hour, within an hour of having happened. But you didn't know where that was unless you also had access, which I did, to Sidney Perley's uh, hundreds of articles on where people lived in Salem as of 1900. His research is going back through the deeds to the 1600s. And put together, it seemed very definitely to point to the lower ledges that he thought for other reasons was the site. So when a number of us got together and agreeing with Pearlie, thought that that spot should be preserved, cleaned up, was a dump, practically. <laughs> it had been purchased for the purpose of memorializing them by people who agreed with that second uh, theory about the lower ledges. Uh, but nothing had ever been done with it, and it was just vacant looking, and people would dump things, and trash would blow onto it. And the, really, and the people who actually lived in Salem, which I don't, uh, would actually go and pick up trash at this point. So she got a number of people together. And uh, we we put all the research together. Uh, a geologist at the local college did ground-penetrating radar, non-invasive stuff. It really, really seemed to point to that spot. And let's see, the University of Virginia did a mapping, computerized mapping project it was unavailable in 1997, much less 1901, to show where people, what people would see from certain vantage points that you can't see now because there's buildings in the way, but it, it had to be that spot. And when we took it to the city of Salem, hoping they wouldn't think this was just another, you know, Halloween touristy thing, uh, they were very much in favor of actually putting a memorial there, which was done. It's a nice landscape design with the names of the people who died there. And the city-owned land is definitely for that purpose now. And it was dedicated with very nice ceremony. It was just mostly local people, people who had been involved, and a lot of descendants of the people who had died there. So it was wow. very nice and fitting, and it was nice of Archaeology Magazine to mention. Wow, that's such an incredible discovery. Uh, we had a question also is... Were people mainly hung or were there also burnings? Because I, I remember learning no. like in elementary school that there was burnings at the stake, but we didn't come across that at all during our research. No, that was Europe. Okay. Uh, witchcraft it. in England and the English colonies is a felt was, was not anymore, was a felony and felons were hanged. Okay. 
Now, you did, uh, tell me if this is correct, 27 years of research for, for that, your well, book. Yeah. It which turned is out in- that way. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> which I, is in- <laughs> my first draft of that first book I did, was everything I could find, uh, was based on sources in print. And then I discovered all of the scholarly riches that are in the state archives. And I realized that there were all these unpublished manuscripts. Mostly I saw them on microfilm. Hot on the eyes, but I was hot on the trail (laughs) here. Uh, And uh, I had to go through all those. And it it really set the scene more in the period and everything else that was going on. So it took 27 years. Yes. But that started in 1975 or 76 with the um, bicentennial of the revolution when a lot of local history was remembered and reconstituted and people started paying attention to it. So it started then and I'm still finding out new things and working on the subject. Wow. It, it's yeah. not letting me go. <laughs> it has a spell on you. Um It says on your website, uh, the turning point was discovering the collections of the manuscripts in the Massachusetts archives Mm -hmm. that told what else was going on at the same time and put the uh, stresses of the witch scare in better context. Mm. Uh, So what, uh, obviously, I'm sure there's a million things, but what else kind of was contributing to the frenzy, do you think? Oh, well, people were on really on edge. And I think that once they thought that there was evil magic afoot, that was that was just the last straw. But uh, the English colonies were at war with Canadian colonies, French Canada. Uh, there were raids from the Native American tribes who allied with the French. Uh, of course, the Native American tribes had reasons of their own to resent uh, population pressures with the, the frontier, excuse me, the frontier uh, settlements that kept spreading out. There was that. There had been some well, horrific in one sense and efficient, <laughs> maybe for the other side, attacks on New York and Maine, New Hampshire, uh, where people were killed, captured, and so on, towns burned. So there was that. There was occasional smallpox cropping up. There wasn't a real full-blown epidemic at that time, but there had been in the past, and you don't know it isn't going to happen until it's over and hasn't happened. There were some cases. There were pirates. Uh, the, the war between France and England meant that there were privateers from each side preying on the ships of the other guy's side. So it, the fishermen and the maritime trade was very important to the economy. They'd get captured. They'd be held for ransom. If they really went far out into the Atlantic and to, to trade with Europe, they could get caught by Barbary pirates and sold in slavery in Northern Africa and have to be ransomed by their relatives or their churches would take up a collection. There weren't a lot of that, but it was a constant possibility. So they're nervous about that too. There had been pirates. There was a piracy case that went to the courts a few years before. But uh, the war was the big thing. And as um, uh, Mary Beth Norton's book in The Devil's Sneer, which was published the same year as mine. <laughs> as she pointed out in detail, there were a lot of people who had been directly invo- uh, involved and influenced by, well, they'd been, they'd been in towns that had been attacked and burned and they escaped with their lives. So the refugees in Massachusetts and the possibility that some of them would have had post-traumatic 
stress syndrome, yeah. which sounds likely considering what wars too. Uh, that's a possibility, but there's a, there's a lot of uh, economic impact with that too, which affects everyone. The and of course, as I, I might have said, we had a charter that's still in existence. That didn't arrive until May of 1692. So Massachusetts, which had lost its legal reason to be here and rule itself, was waiting to see what the changing British government, because there was a revolution over there, uh, what they were going to allow them to do as far as self-rule went. So do we own our own land? Do we have any say in anything other than who's going to catch the local pig catcher? Or do we get to have a legislature or what? And they weren't sure yet what was in the charter. They knew one had just been granted, but they didn't know it was in it until it arrived in May. So that was another. Maria had asked a good question earlier. Uh, Did surrounding uh, colonies and cities uh, or, or other places know what was going on in Salem during these trials? And did they have any perspective or ideas or, you know, opinion of what was going on? Uh, yeah. Um, well, Salem is the center of it. And Salem Village, which is the rural end of town, separate town now, but it, it was the rural end of town where it really started. Uh, that was the center of it. But the panic kind of spread outward. Uh, the fairly well-off town of Andover, which is somewhat to the north, actually had more suspects arrested than did Salem before this was over. And there were people in other towns, sort of the usual suspect people would wonder about. Uh, and it was a, and the trials, of course, were on the province level. It was held in Salem because of the numbers of people who had to show up at court. And that's the county town it still is for trials. But uh, so uh, all of Massachusetts was aware of it, eastern Massachusetts, especially because that's where everything seemed to be going wrong. Uh, Maine was p- actually part of Massachusetts then, and that was mostly affected by uh, the attacks so that there were only a couple of towns left that were not burned out. New Hampshire was just along the seacoast then, which is a very short seacoast now, but they're aware of it. That's a, that's a different government. Rhode Island and Connecticut. Rhode Island stayed calm. There were a few cases in Connecticut, and... Uh, the upper house of the legislature, this pretty much put the trials on uh, the ends of the trials that there were only four people involved that were accused there. Uh, put it on hold until they saw just how bad things went in Massachusetts. And New York was aware of it because some of the people who were jailed in Massachusetts escaped and made their way to New York and they were not extradited. They, they were kind of waiting to see what kind of a mess people in Massachusetts were going to do next and feeling somewhat superior to, to <laughs> the government and the people. And, well, everything was going wrong that summer. Not that everybody thought that's what was going on, but enough so that that's what was going on. Yeah. Whoa, that's really And eventually problem. there was op- enough opposition so that it, they paused by the end of the summer October is a big month for tourism in Salem now because it's Halloween. Yeah. Halloween is fun, but it's not what was happening then at all. That was the quiet month then. They stopped what they were doing. There had been uh, quite a few executions in September and a lot of trials. And then they put a pause to it to rethink what was going on. Because the more people who were 
accused, arrested, and questioned, and so on, the more suspects were named. It just seemed to, it was perpetuating itself. So they put a stop to it temporarily. The governor wrote to England to say, once their majesties tell me what to do, I'll do it. But right now we want to pause because this isn't working. No. And by the way, it's not my fault, he said. <laughs> then there would have been more trials and executions in November, but they decided they were going to just end that court and wait to hear from England. Over the winter, there was a lot of people still in jail. The jails are not built to hold a lot of people or anybody for a long time. There's, there's bills for firewood, so they weren't totally bereft of heat, but there wasn't enough of it. And uh, the sanitation in those days would have been a bucket. So people were dying from natural causes. Uh, and there were petitions from their families to let them out on bail. We'll bring, we'll bring mother back in the spring when you hold court, but right, really, can she stay home all winter? Pretty much what the petition boiled down to. So they did have more trials in January in, in Salem for Essex County, like county by county. But the court was not to pay attention to spectral evidence, which was the big problem because. Uh, someone who is bewitched thinks they're bewitched, perhaps convinced themselves they were bewitched. Some of them saw or thought they saw hallucinations or visions or specters of a witch spirit uh, coming after them and hurting them. Because they, I think they were feeling actual aches and pains from psychosomatic reasons, Some, uh, at least some of them some of the time. Uh, so... They can see it, and some of the of the if there's more than one person being afflicted at the same time, they verify each other's description of what's going on, but no one else can. So you're kind of taking their word for it. And from the beginning, the ministers and others pointed out that you cannot believe visions like that because it's probably the devil's delusion. That uh, to make things worse, possibly there's a real witch doing these things, but you cannot be certain of it because the devil and his minions can uh, falsify the appearance of somebody you know, for example, your suspect, and even a good person, even a very saintly person. So you you never know when it's real or not. So don't take that as evidence. Don't don't pay it. Don't play into the devil's hands. And of course, that's what they were doing, if, if only metaphorically, all summer long. And once that was kicked yeah. out of court, you really couldn't find people guilty. Thank God. No pun intended. Um, I guess my last uh, question is to the effect of the hallucinations and things like that. You made a really interesting note on your website. People uh, have, I think it was in, uh, there was some sort of study also that, uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, that the ergot poisoning could have been uh, a suspect for this like kind of mass hysteria and mass hallucinations. Mm. Uh, but you had kind of another idea about that kind of um, saying that that's probably not the cause. Yeah, um, that was published back in the 1970s. When LSD was a new thing, 60s maybe <laughs> even earlier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, ergot poisoning, which can occur, it's a fungus that occurs naturally on mostly rye grains, and rye bread was uh, common then because it grew better than the wheat did. So 
it was cheaper and more people would be eating it. There are apparently two different symptoms that ergot poisoning can take. One is the convulsions, such as the afflicted head, and the other is gangrene, and nobody reported that. And the gangrene would not occur unless there was a vitamin A deficiency. And there's been some argument, I guess, in different articles as to just how much vitamin A was in their diet available for what they had to eat. I, I agree that they probably had enough vitamin A so that they were not suffering from ergot poisoning. Besides the fact that I think everyone in the in the family would be eating from the same loaf of bread, but only one or two or, or just one oh. has a, a reaction to it. So yeah. that's been... It was disproven like about a month or two months after it was originally published. And then another opinion was published a few years later. But it's the theory that will not die. <laughs> Hopefully we can squash it now. Um, Marilyn, thank you so much. This has been so illuminating and informative. And uh, we feel so uh, honored and lucky to uh, talk to you. I know you have your book, Six Women of Salem, uh, which is uh, incredible. And The Gallows Project. Is there anything else that our listeners uh, should read of yours that would be informative? Well, that first big one that took 27 years is, well, I didn't name it, but the uh, publisher called it The Salem Witch Trials, <laughs> a day-by-day -day chronicle of a community under siege. And it's a day-by-day -day chronological approach, oh, well, mainly because it's the only way I could keep all the information in any kind of order. Yeah. And I'm working yeah. on something else now that's a no publisher yet. But it's a companion volume to Six Women of Salem. It's Six Men of Salem. Oh, incredible. Um, well, thank you so much, Marilyn. We really appreciate it. And uh, hope you have a really great uh, rest of the day. Thank you. And now we have Rachel Christ, who is Director of Education at the Salem Museum, who's going to answer some more questions for us about these Salem witch trials, how they exist today, and the development of uh, witchcraft in uh, popular uh, society and history. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We're really, really excited. Uh, I just have like a few questions uh, about the museum and the trials and uh, everything like that. Sure. First of all, I think I got this from your LinkedIn, so <laughs> I apologize in your advance for being a creepy stalker. But um, I think it said that your your senior thesis, I think it was at Clark University mm -hmm. was uh, the development of the Good Witch in post-World War II America, which I found to be super interesting because now witchcraft seems to be like popular and accepted um, in contrast to, you know, this whole episode, which is on the Salem witch trials. Uh, can you tell us like a little bit more about that subject and what your thesis was on? Sure. You definitely get points for research. <laughs> you, uh, I saw in the email you sent earlier with some of the questions that you had the title and I was like, how did you even find this? I have but, a lot of free time. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm impressed with your um, thorough research skills. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So this has really been my, um, I, I guess my thing is not the academic way to say, but my area of speciality mm. Is the We're not an academic podcast, don't worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my, my thing, if you will, is um, the evolving image of the witch. And I actually mm -hmm. just graduated uh, from a, a master's program where that was my continuing focus. I 
I was working full time and in the program full time because I'm a psychopath. So (laughs) I didn't write a thesis as a um, during my master's, but I did do some independent research, which was focused on this evolving image. Um, Someday, hopefully this will be a book that. I will write in my ample amounts of free time. I keep saying yeah. and my fiance keeps just <laughs> laughing at me like, yeah, okay, <laughs> with all of your ample free time. But um, it's really a fascinating subject because I don't know about you, but I grew up obsessed with Harry Potter and, you know, Sabrina, the teenage witch and Wicked and all these pop yeah. culture witches. I dressed like Hermione Granger for years for, Hall- as ha- <laughs> for Halloween. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I loved witchcraft as a child and it wasn't until I got a little older and I was in, um, my undergraduate program looking at, um, I was really into gender history, but I was like, you know, what job am I ever going to get as a gender historian? That's a very hard field to break into. Um, and I kind of stumbled into witchcraft history, uh, which is really goes hand in hand with gender history. They're very closely linked. Um, and I kind of stumbled into a job at the Salem Witch Museum, which obviously I've been here ever since. Um, so it was all just kind of a happy accident. But I basically um, started at the very beginning with, you know, okay, what is the witch historically? Uh, how is this connected to the image of a woman? Because the early modern witch trials, anybody can be accused of witchcraft, men, women, children. Um, but the stereotype of a witch that emerges is a woman, particularly an older woman, haggard, evil, eating children in the woods like Hansel and Gretel. So my research really started to dig into how do we get from point A, a real person being accused of witchcraft, to this stereotype and then get to you know, point D where we're all the way down in the 1990s and Hermione Granger is saving the day at Hogwarts, you know, how do all those things happen? Um, So it's a really interesting story. My kind of personal take on it is it's very connected to the feminist movement. um, And that's what my thesis was about. So, and this is what my research has kind of continued being. So, I mean, it's kind of a two things that happen at the same time. One, we have enough distance from historical witch trials by the time we get to, let's say, the 1890s that um, people can kind of start to play with the witch. There are people who still believe in witches, and believe it or not, there are actually instances of mob justice where people are kind of pulling their neighbors through the streets saying she's a witch, we got to kill her. That is still happening in rural places in America. But for most people... They no longer believe in witches. They no longer believe that your neighbor can put a curse on you. And because of that, witches can kind of enter pop culture in a very different way. So you start to see during the first wave of feminism, witches emerging in pop culture in places like The Wizard of Oz, which comes out in 1900, Halloween postcards. You start to see some plays um, that are... um, including good witches. So witches who are perhaps beautiful, good, sympathetic characters saving the day. You see this in poems by feminists in by the time we get to like the 1910s, 1920s. And then it just keeps ramping up from there. So you get to the 60s and 70s, second wave feminism, Samantha Stevens and Bewitched emerges. Uh, You keep going. You get to the 90s, third wave feminism. There's like an explosion of witches. Um, They're just kind of overwhelming pop culture. And it just links so closely together that it can't be an accident is essentially my 
thesis. So that's yeah. so you gotta write that. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is so crazy. Um, I paused and gasped a little bit because I thought you were gonna say internationally. Um, that there are some places still where people are being dragging out their neighbors and being oh, like, you are, are a witch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah. I'm I am astounded that this is happening still like domestically in some rural places in America. Do you have any more like information on that or where that's happening or anything like so, that? So I, I wouldn't say happening right now. When I say oh, okay. contemporary, I mean like the 1900s, early 1900s, okay, late 1800s. I mean, you could, I mean, I wouldn't, say it's out of the question that there are some very rural places in America where people may believe that um, in very um, are very superstitious still and may Mm -hmm. believe that, you know, your neighbor's capable of putting a curse on you. But, you know, the uh, episodes of mob justice where you see people being like dragged through the streets, that's still happening in like the 1890s, which is really unbelievable considering witchcraft has been decriminalized in the British colonies since the 1730s. So you've got hundreds of years where you can't legally prosecute someone for witchcraft, but it's holding on in pop culture or in the popular mind to a point where people still really want to you know, blame misfortune on that idea of a witch. It's such an easy cop out. Um, On the Salem website, it talks about, which I thought was interesting uh, that I had no idea about, uh, that there were Asian American witch hunts, uh, that witch hunts uh, extended even so far as to like Poland uh, and internationally. Uh, If you know anything about this, like what are some of the most notable international hunts and how did this kind of like spread throughout the world? So um, there's, this is kind of a two part answer. So Uh witch trials in the definition of a witch being a person who is capable of having supernatural powers and bringing harm to someone through those powers, whether they're getting the powers from the Christian devil, whether they're getting their powers from another supernatural force, Mm -hmm. that's something that you see in many, many cultures across the world. So sadly, there are still witch hunts going on in Africa today, where yeah. uh, which are particularly targeting children, which is really de- upsetting. Um, I can't, I don't claim to be an expert in those witch hunts, but we did do an event at our museum a couple of years ago with an organization that's working to combat those witch hunts. Um, oh and that's really, really dark stuff. Um, there were witch trials that took place all across Europe during the early modern period. So jumping back to the time when witch hunts are happening, um, you know, kind of across the board throughout Europe. So witch hunts in Poland, there were witch hunts in Russia, there were witch hunts in England and Scotland and Germany, uh, which at the time is the Holy Roman Empire. Um, You see um, kind of concepts similar to the witch in places in South America. Um, But, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to categorize them as a witch because a witch is, um, you know, kind of a European concept. It's a different religion, a different set of beliefs. But then separately, there's also the idea of a witch hunt. And that's something we really focus on at our our museum. Uh, The last thing our visitors see when they leave our museum is something we call a witch hunt wall, which presents a formula for witch hunts. So that formula is fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. And we break that down in the context of the Salem witch trials. But then we also offer three contemporary examples that fit that formula. So we talk about um, Japanese internment. So Japanese Americans being scapegoated after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 
we talk about the McCarthy blacklists. Um, so blacklisting people as communists during the fifties and then the AIDS epidemic being blamed on the gay community in the 1980s. So, uh, referring to Asian American witch hunts, we're doing a program in August, which I'm sure is where you got that verbiage from. We're doing a program about witch hunts against Asian Americans, but witch hunts being the formula. So the Asian American, yeah. yeah. Asian, um, immigrants being scapegoated throughout our country's history, which the really dark part of this presentation is we were planning on really focusing just on Japanese internment because that's a part of our museum. And that's something we really wanted to dig into, but in doing the research, it turns out, you know, and I shouldn't be surprised by this information that uh, Asian Americans have been treated this way since they got here, this kind of tendency yeah. to scapegoat. And it's the same mentality we see during witch trials. You're different from me in some way. So I'm going to blame everything that's wrong on you because it's easier than really addressing the problem. So, and we just wow. see the sweat swell to a kind of apex during the um, internment during World War II, but it was going on long before. Uh, World War II, and it has gone on consistently since then, as we're seeing, unfortunately, right now. Yeah. Wow. So your museum really like educates on a wide variety of subjects and injustices and finds a way to kind of tie it back to this formula that happened uh, during the Salem witch trials, which is really cool. Um, I wasn't going to ask this question, but now I'm kind of interested. Um, It's an easy one. But who who are is your is your is the population that comes to the museum, is it like children in schools who are like doing the tour? Is it mostly tourists or who, who mostly comes through? It's a really wide variety, which is really kind of neat. Um, it's a really great opportunity. Um, we get, uh, school groups, you know, kids in elementary school up through high school, up through college, We get uh, families who are just on vacation in Salem. So, you know, mom, dad, two kids, three kids. Um, We get international visitors. People come here from all over the world Um, in normal times. And we're trying to get back there now. um, We have our presentations translated into like seven different languages. Um, We haven't figured out a way to pull that off with COVID precautions because we were giving people physical headsets. And now we have to figure out a way to do that in a way that is, um, you know, COVID safe, but, um, that is for specifically the international visitors. I mean, and domestic visitors as well, but it was kind of created with those international visitors in mind. And we get, you know, college students who are just excited to be in Salem and, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning, love Hermione Granger and Hocus Pocus, and they want to come here and dress like a witch and things like that. Um, and that's okay. The kind of cool part about Salem is people come for the stereotypical witch, Oftentimes they come for Halloween and for the pop culture, witch, but they come through places like our museum and they get this whole other perspective on witchcraft history. And they leave, ideally, if we do our job correctly, with this kind of widened perspective on what the image of a witch is and what this history is and why it's still so important to us today. Yeah, 100%. Um, I've been to Salem once. I somehow missed the museum, but... um, (laughs) I'm going to have to go again. Um, My last question is uh, living in Salem. uh, Do you find this is an obscure question that there's like a heavy energy or do you feel any kind of like leftover like (laughs) darkness or residual leftover darkness, (laughs) leftover darkness. But do you feel any kind of like, leftover presence from the trials like i mean 
That's a weird question, but <laughs> it's actually not. I get asked questions like that a lot in uh, interviews, so don't feel weird. Okay. Um, so I mean, so I don't actually live in Salem. I live in Beverly, okay. which is just across the bridge. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's interesting. I don't feel any sort of like dark presence here. Uh-huh. Um, I feel kind of. I, I mean, it's hard to describe, but especially our assistant education director and myself have been working on this project over the past couple of years, which is uh, packets for descendants. So uh, for people who can chase their trace their ancestry to someone involved in the Salem witch trials. So basically this has just been our opportunity to do a deep dive on everything we know about these individual people. We started with the 20 individuals who were executed and now we're expanding the project to the accusers people who were accused and survived, the people who died in jail and so on. And this is a project that's going to go on for the rest of our lives. But um, it's been a really interesting opportunity to just think about these people in terms of um, them being real people. You know, it's sometimes, especially when we're talking about witchcraft history, um, we kind of think of, you know, it's, it's the supernatural, right? It's ghosts and magic and flying on broomsticks and stuff. But it's not at the end of the day. These are just real people who unfortunately were targeted in the way that people are targeted today. They were victims of a mass hysteria, mass panic, which we're still seeing happening right now. So it's not that I feel like their ghosts are around us, but I do feel like, um, you know, once we really start to think of them, I feel like I carry them with me in a way. And everybody who studies the Salem witch trials, I think, starts to feel that way. And once you really start to examine who they are as people, you really start to feel the trials in a different way. And I definitely feel that walking around in Salem. Uh, you know, I can't speak to others who are not doing this weird, crazy deep dive into these people's <laughs> lives, but. You know, no, for sure. And also I think you're probably doing a huge service to uh, both the accusers and the accused and like kind of honoring them and telling their stories and helping them to move on. Should they're, you know, still be there or, you know, whatever it is, honoring their legacy. So that's great. Uh, We actually, the reason for this episode was because someone called in uh, and left us a voicemail that they were related to someone who uh, was um, hung during the Salem witch trials. So we have to revisit that and see, we should connect you guys. Um, I don't know, maybe they, you've done their packet. I don't, uh, but that would be interesting. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for all this information. This was so uh, incredible. And, if people want to uh, find you online, if you want to be found or visit the museum or uh, read any of your work or anything like that, where can people reach you? The Salem Witch Museum's Facebook page or Instagram page. I run both. <laughs> uh, my Amazing. email is also all over our website. So if you have any questions about the Salem Witch Trials, you can always feel free to shoot me an email and I will answer your questions to the best of my ability. Um, but following us on social media is really the best way to stay in touch with what we're doing, what you can expect to see in the future, special events, things like that. Um, and both of those, our Facebook and Instagram are just at Salem Witch Museum. So if you know anything else about the Salem Witch Trials, if you happen to be related to anyone um who uh, was in the Salem Witch Trials, uh, if you are a Salem Witch Trials historian, or if you are a practicing witch today and uh, feel any effects uh, from these trials, or if you live in Salem, I've been there once and it was so cool. 
But also the whole time I did not get cell phone service, which is kind of interesting. Um, interesting. interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> um, spooky. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, where can people reach us? You can email us at webcrawlerspod at gmail.com. I'm Allie Siegel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Melissa, not a witch. Stetton. And I'm producer Kitchen Witch Blasucci. And I say it again. I love kitchen witchery. I think it's so fun. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye. Don't forget to make your Bye. urine cakes. Yeah. Original. Powered by ACAST. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.